0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the looming date of June the 1st, when, if the debt ceiling is not raised, the United States will default on its debts and suffer untold self-inflicted damage to its economy and the lives of its citizens to the U.S. dollar and to the global economy. We will discuss how Biden and the Democrats and the press have framed this pending act of insanity as dueling budget proposals when the debt ceiling has nothing to do with the budget and is a one-sided suicide pact to weaken America, not at the hands of foreign enemies, but from domestic terrorists known as the House Freedom Caucus, the MAGA radicals who controlled the Craven Speaker Kevin McCarthy and would like to sow economic chaos to bring back their orange man on a white horse as America's first dictator. Joining us is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Tom Mann, now in an updated version It's Even Worse Than It Was. He is the co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned and the Desperate and the Not Yet Deported. And we will discuss his article at the Bulwark, Staying Clear-Eyed About Republican Radicalism on the Debt Ceiling. Then, with gushing press coverage ahead of Saturday's coronation of King Charles III about Golden Carriages and the Stone of Destiny, etc., We'll assess whether the royal brand and the tourism generated by the pomp and pageantry of a royal family compensates for the enormous expense of having a monarchy in a country the Tories have downsized and all but ruined with their Brexit debacle. Joining us from London, England, is Graham Smith, CEO of the campaign organisation Republic, which aims to abolish the monarchy and replace it with an elected head of state. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Abolish the Monarchy, Why We Should and How We Will, And we will discuss his article at CNN, We Want a Choice Instead of Charles. Then finally, we'll examine the reintroduction of child labor in the United States by Republican governors in Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, and South Dakota. Joining us is Michael Hilsick, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry. Currently, he writes the twice-weekly column, Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, and Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And we will discuss his latest article at the Los Angeles Times, America Vanquished the Ancient Atrocity of Child Labour, Republicans are bringing it back. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our soundbites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our tax-deductible non Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now with an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he is the co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. And he has an article at The Bulwark, Staying Clear-Eyed About Republican Radicalism on the Debt Ceiling. Welcome to Background Briefing, Norm Ornstein.
1: Always good to be with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, Norm, the the clock is ticking on the debt limit uh, ceiling. Now uh, the Treasury Secretary says it's as early as uh, the 1st of June. So your article points out that, in effect, the Biden administration has fallen victim to the kind of binary notion in our journalism, of that in the universe of discourse, there's only a, a black and white equal and opposite argument on the one hand, on the other hand. And they're giving the House Speaker an enormous gift by treating him as if this was a normal negotiation, when in fact it is what uh, John Banner described as legislative terrorism. It's like standing in a, in a tub of gasoline threatening to strike a match.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, let's face it, Ian, it's part of a broader problem that we've had for a long time with our mainstream journalism. Uh, You know, uh, Tom Mann and I in the book, it's even worse than it looks, wrote um, more than 10 years ago, that a balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. And that's what we've seen with the treatment of the Republican Party Uh, as a legitimate party, as no different than the Democratic Party for a very long time. And what it does is it gives traction to this kind of legislative uh, terrorism. If you know you're not going to be paying a price for it, if you're not going to be the ones blamed, even though you are the ones who deserve to be blamed, you're encouraged to do even more of this and we're seeing it now with the debt ceiling it was predictable i wrote a piece actually in the atlantic october uh before the midterm elections saying if the republicans win the house this is the direction we're going to be going in and it could end up in a really disastrous outcome for the country and for the global economy and you know we can go back and look uh, the of course the mantra of the Republicans now is, hey, we're just trying to negotiate. Uh, We uh, have uh, passed uh, something that just is a modest cut in spending. But of course, the reality is that when Donald Trump was president, Kevin McCarthy and his allies, all of whom are engaging in this hostage-taking, voted three times for a clean increase in the debt ceiling, which, remember, is not about incurring future debts. It's about paying the debts you've already incurred. They did it three times with Donald Trump, while the debt grew by $7.8 trillion, more than any previous president, more than most previous presidents combined. So this is a phony exercise and it's a dangerous one because McCarthy is the weakest speaker in modern memory, and because many of his members are not using this just to negotiate. They're happy to have us go over the cliff, and they think, with good reason, that it'll probably be blamed on the president.
0: So what do you think will come out of this meeting, then, scheduled for May the 9th in the White House between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden? Apparently some of the White House staff are looking into the option of a constitutional challenge on the debt limit uh, using the 14th Amendment as a theory, in other words, to continue issuing new debt to pay bondholders and Social Security recipients and government employees, etc., even if Congress fails to lift the limit by the date of expiration, which is expected around June the 1st.
1: So I will say, Ian, that I was disappointed in the way the president and the Democratic leaders reacted after the election, but before the new Congress came in, in a lame duck session, as we call it, when Democrats were still in charge. Now, admittedly, it was a very narrow margin in the House and still a tie in the Senate. But I thought then they had an opportunity to deal with this problem. And the best way to deal with it was by implementing something ironically called the McConnell rule, which is what Mitch McConnell came up with back in 2011 when we almost went into default. And that was done once. The president raises the debt ceiling. Congress can pass a joint resolution blocking it, but he can veto that. And basically, he then only needs one third plus one of one of the two houses. And so the blame will go to the president. He's the one incurring the debt uh, is what the political charge will be. Presidents can handle that, but it wouldn't be a hostage uh, with the threat that occurs. And they weren't able to do it. They weren't able to do it in part because they had no Republican support in the Senate. And. They didn't have all 50 Democrats. Mansion and Cinema, surprise, were the ones who bought it. But I think they should have made it a public issue then. Now, where we are, I would be stunned, frankly, pleasantly stunned, if something came out of this meeting at the White House. I do think that we have two options here. Remember, the bill that passed the House, which they say was a modest. Change in spending would actually cut vital programs, including air traffic control and safety net protections and uh, occupational safety and almost every program that impinges on people's lives,
0: including veterans' benefits, by the way,
1: that's slashed and including and veterans' help, but including the administration of social security, even if the benefits aren't changed, the checks wouldn't be able to get out very handily. To avoid that, uh, where Kevin McCarthy has told his crazy caucus, the Freedom Caucus, that this is not the uh, place where you start negotiating, it's the floor, that's the minimum of what they want. So either McCarthy caves and they do some face-saving meaningless thing like creating a new commission to look into uh, debt in the future, Uh, or uh, we're going to end up with the White House having to turn to uh, a nuclear option. Now, frankly, it's a legitimate option. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution flatly says that our debts will be paid there is no such thing as a debt ceiling that can be breached. If you look at the history of this, Ian, the reason it was done was because of a fear that when the South came back into the Union, they would try and use the debt as a hostage to basically bludgeon the North into giving them back, uh, the, if not slavery, something close to it. So it was just this sort of situation that had it built into the Constitution. It would be legitimate for the president to say there is no such thing as a constitutional debt ceiling, even if it's been employed over many decades. And I am simply going to continue to pay our debts and treat the government the way it has been treated, whether there's an increase or not in the debt ceiling. And of course, another option is to have the Treasury Secretary, which is also within the realm of the legislative arena and what is allowable, uh, coin or mint this so-called $3 trillion uh, titanium coin. So you actually have more revenue to uh, to pay for uh, our uh, bills and our debts. That will be challenged. It will go to Supreme Court that is dominated by uh, the Sam of the world. We don't know what they would do with it, but it's pretty clear cut in the Constitution. But we also have to consider whether that option, even if it gets us out of the biggest disaster, is gonna be viewed by the rest of the world as adequate. The dollar is the reserve currency for much of the world. It's because people and governments trust the US and the US dollar more than they do the euro or the swiss franc or the chinese or the russian or any other currency that's out there if we lose that trust it's going to be a terrible blow back in 2011 when we came close to breaching the debt by the way put by kevin mccarthy and his colleague in the house leadership Eric Cantor, and saved only by John Boehner, who decried it as legislative terrorism, and it was the beginning of the end of his uh, speakership. But just coming close meant that our credit rating as a country for the first time in history was downgraded, and that alone cost taxpayers another $19 billion or so added to the debt. So coming close because of a concern about the debt actually made the problem worse. If we have to go to this kind of option, which some are going to call trickery, who knows what it'll mean in terms of added interest rates, a downgrading in our credit, our allies seeing us as untrustworthy, as a government that's become farcical, our adversaries trying to use it against us. This is ridiculous what congressional Republicans are doing. And they're leading us into a really bad place. And we have to make sure that the reporting on this points the finger where it belongs.
0: So why didn't from day one Biden and the Democrats make it clear that there's no relationship between raising the debt ceiling and the budget and that this is a phony Effort at hostage taking. There are absolutely no relationship, and anybody that threatens the full faith and credit of the United States and is prepared to destroy the U.S. economy and create a global depression are insane. And we don't deal with insanity. And we're going to continue on and ignore these these terrorists. I mean, can he put it in in those language? I'm um, not exactly the way that i phrase it, but you know what I mean? I'd be
1: happy with that language. But, you know, I, I think that is more or less what Biden said up until the announcement of this meeting. He basically said, we don't fool around with the full faith and credit of the United States. You want to talk about budget discipline. There's a time and a place for that. It's in the budget and appropriations process. The reason he's having this meeting now, I believe, is because many of his Democrats are getting nervous, and they're getting nervous for just the reason that I've been harping on, which is a fear that they will be blamed for catastrophe, because if you look at the press coverage of this, first of all, you get McCarthy by one vote, the tie-breaking vote cast by, of all people, George Santos. A ridiculously uh, extreme and radical plan, and the press coverage is not about how ridiculous and extreme and radical it is. It's well, look at Kevin McCarthy is stronger than we thought. He actually got something passed, and if you look at the headlines, otherwise there. Why isn't Biden negotiating? So some of the reason behind where we are now, a good part of it is because the press has framed it in a very bad way. But I will also say that I think the White House and Democratic leaders in Congress were way too optimistic and rosy-eyed. The attitude has been breaching the debt ceiling, having a default for the first time in American history is so ridiculous that nobody will do it. They'll play this game of chicken and then they will veer away. They will blink first. It is a misunderstanding of how radical the House Republicans have become and a misunderstanding about how much Kevin McCarthy is completely in their pocket. He may have gotten this passed by one vote, but he could only do it by convincing the most radical of his members, the Matt Gaetzes, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Paul Gosar's, the Scott Perry's, that he was going to hold firm and force the White House to cave. He can't do that. And if he compromises now in any significant fashion, he's got a four vote margin in the House. And part of the way he became Speaker in that 15th ballot was by saying that any one member at any time can call for a new vote on the Speaker. He can only afford to lose four. And if he breaches the trust of the Freedom Caucus, he's out. And he cares about that more than he does about the well-being of the country.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, Norm Ornstein, is it possible that this is not just crazy, but there's a sort of strategy in the craziness of the the so-called Freedom Caucus, in the sense that so much of what's happening now in this country, with the hate and the nastiness, I don't know whether you saw the Marjorie Taylor Greene's attack on the woman that was the testifying.
1: On Randy Weingarten, it was disgusting.
0: Yeah, it was so horrible. And frankly, it you know, makes no sense for a radical anti-abortion Republican to be against adopting children. That's their whole argument about abortion that the young girls that get pregnant should go ahead and have the baby and adopt it out. So nothing about these people make any sense. But on the other hand, is there some kind of strategy in the sense that they're perfectly happy to see the American economy tank, and they don't care about the global economy, obviously, and create economic chaos and, and division in this country, making it more likely that a radical like Donald Trump could get reelected?
1: You're exactly right, Ian, and it brings us back full circle to where we began. They have an unwitting ally in so much of the mainstream media. The fact is, if we get economic chaos, and it could be global economic chaos, people are more likely to blame the party they see as in power, which is Joe Biden and the Democrats, than they are to blame the radicals who instigated it. And so for many of them, they're willing to tolerate the pain and upheaval that will be caused to a whole lot of their own constituents if they think it will give them a better chance of recapturing the presidency. And let's keep in mind, if they recapture the presidency, we lose our democracy. I give Joe Biden great credit for the way He has framed his reelection campaign, a brilliant 90 second commercial that it's not about Joe Biden and his record. It's a choice between freedom and democracy and autocracy. And if we lose that frame, and it goes back to look at how badly the economy has been under Biden, we are now in the middle of a depression then we've lost a lot more than just the economic well-being of a whole lot of Americans.
0: Well, Norman Onsen, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Sure, absolutely, and have a good day despite all of this.
0: Well, thank you very much, Norman. Again, I've been speaking with Norman Ornstein, who's a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and he is an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research and the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now out in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. He is the co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the not yet deported, and he has an article at the Bulwark staying clear-eyed about Republican radicalism on the debt ceiling. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the gushing press coverage ahead of Saturday's coronation of King Charles III and a plan to abolish the monarchy and replace it with an elected head of state.
2: Well, you've got your diamonds, and you've got your pretty clothes Chauffeur drives your cars, you let everybody know, but don't play
3: with me cause you're playing with fire, your mother
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from London, England, is Graham Smith, the CEO of the campaign organization Republic, which aims to abolish the monarchy and replace it with an elected head of state. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Abolish the Monarchy, Why We Should and How We Will. And he has an article at CNN, We Want a Choice Instead of Charles. Welcome to Background Briefing, Graham Smith. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Graham. And the media over here in the United States, of course, is all excited about the coronation on Saturday, right? And it's always puzzled me why a country that fought a revolution in order to get away from the British monarch is so enamored, but there are all kinds of stories about the uh, golden carriages and the stone of destiny. So as a kind of brand, it looks like the royalty has a lot of traction, at least here in the United States.
4: Well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think that, you know, if you asked your typical uh, American citizen, would you be happy if uh, Hunter Biden inherited the job of president after, uh, after Joe Biden had uh, was done with it, then I think they'd be horrified at the thought and, you know, I think the problem is that a lot of people don't necessarily see the monarchy as being part of our constitution, um, and they just see it as a kind of nice, quaint little relic um, that, you know, a bit of fun and maybe sort of has celebrity um, uh, power. But, you know, it is part of our constitution. The king is our head of state. He has certain functions and roles, and he has certainly plenty of influence and power within, in terms of pushing his own agenda and uh, advancing his own interests. And um, and that is a problem. I mean, it's it, we shouldn't, none of us as Democrats should be putting up with a hereditary public office. None of us should be putting up with an institution that falls so far short of the standards we should expect. And our constitution is pretty poor, really. I mean, it's, it's sort of okay in a sort of broad sense of being a parliamentary system, but um, there are a lot of failings within our system, and a lot of those can be traced back to the crown. So
0: what about the complaint about the cost of the monarchy? It's a little complex, is it not? The royal estates generate an enormous amount of money, most of which goes to the government, and some of which, a smaller amount, goes to the royal family. So how much are they a burden on the British taxpayer?
4: Well, there's a lot of confusion that's quite deliberately um, put out there by those who support the monarchy because the crown lands are a state property. They they are not the property of the royal family. The crown, in that instance, is a part of the state um, and is under control under the control of Parliament. So, all of the money from crown lands goes to the government and always has done for um, even back when. The king was the government, um, and it's there to pay for the running of the government. Back in 2011, the government decided to change the funding for the monarchy and peg it to the profits of the crown estate, which manages a lot of that land. Um, so the money doesn't come from the crown estate, but it's just pegged to it so that it can keep going, keeps going up. It can't go down again. It can only go up if the profits go up. So there's no real rhyme or reason why that should be. Um, there's no logic to it. Um, so in terms of the burden, it's I mean their official cost for last year was £100 million for the year, which is a, a pretty hefty bill um, for an office that is only supposed to provide us with one head of state. But our calculations suggest it's more like £345 million, and some people think it's probably a bit more than that. Because there are so many things that don't count in that official cost, such as security, such as um, incomes of two land portfolios called uh, Duchy of Cornwall and Duchy of Lancaster, which are again owned by the state, but we allow William and Charles to take the profits, and costs met by local government when they go around cutting ribbons and meeting people. So there's quite, and also unpaid tax. So, um, you know, it's quite a hefty burden. And put that in context, you can probably pay for you 13,000 new police officers or teachers for that kind of money.
0: So the Duchy of Lancaster, which King Charles controls, and the Duchy of Cornwall, which his heir, Prince William, now controls, and Charles yeah. used to control before his mother died, they don't own that? Is that what you're saying?
4: That's right. They call it private estates. They say, well, no, this is a private estate and, and uh, therefore it's none of your business. But in fact, it's quite clear if you look at the historic record, if you look at parliamentary debates even 70 years ago and certainly 150 years ago and, you know, expert opinion from 100 years ago when Queen Victoria died. Um, you know, it's very clear that all of this land belongs to the crown and it is only... Uh, it's only the case that they are allowed to sort of claim it as their own because Parliament allows them to. But if Parliament wished to discontinue that um, that arrangement, then they, they certainly could. Um, so, you know, this is part of the problem with the monarchy is it's quite dishonest as an institution. It's very, very secretive, and it, it relies heavily on um, misdirection and uh, dishonest spin, and so they keep on insisting... Um, that is private estate but it, I mean they have various exemptions from laws because they are crown property um, and they don't pay taxes and then they come up with all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't pay uh, corporation tax which I don't know whether that's uh, what you'd call it in the States but a corporation tax is, is kind of an income tax for the um, or profit tax for the uh, for companies which everybody has to pay if you're making a profit um but they just refuse point blank they just said they come up with lots of um, excuses and the government allows them to avoid that tax so yeah i mean these are national assets that parliament controls and parliament just acquiesces and allows them to keep the profits which are in the region of 22 million pounds per Duchy each year
0: so tell us about your movement uh, republic and the extent to which you're going to be demonstrating already. there have been demonstrations with signs saying, "Not my king." And there's an expression here in the United States about you know being a skunk at a picnic, so is that <laughs> what you're going to be on Saturday with all the pomp and circumstance there'll There'll be signs saying, "Not my king."
4: Yeah, I mean, in the eyes of some, I'm sure. But I mean, the point is that this is a it, this is not a picnic. It's not a party. It's not a celebration. It It, it is a very, very um, public uh, process of, of insisting that this man has to be our head of state and celebrating this institution. You know, it's a political message, really. It's a political event in that sense. And so it needs to be directly challenged uh, by protesters. And that's what we're organizing. So. We do strongly object to the idea that he has walked into this job of king simply because um, he was the son of the previous head of state. And so we are going to be there in large numbers making that point on the day right next to the procession. And we want to make it as visible and loud as possible so that people cannot uh, miss it. So
0: has anybody done a cost-benefit analysis of what, the royals cost the British taxpayer vis-a-vis what the brand brings in in terms of tourism, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of fascination over here in the United States. You know,
4: well, the, the evidence that we can see suggests that there's no real financial benefit at all. The the tourism thing has been largely debunked. There's no evidence that people come here because we have a monarchy. So they they obviously enjoy the heritage and the history and uh, and all the rest of it, um, and that's still going to be here whether we have a monarchy or not and we've spoken to experts and and um, and visit britain and economists visit britain is the official body that promotes um, the uk as a tourist destination and they've also said look there's no evidence that we would lose tourism if we got rid of the monarchy so, so that's that's been largely debunked and even the, the whole brand thing i know there's there are reports out there that put some pretty wild numbers out but it, it, you know we're currently working with economists to uh, go through those numbers and it, they really don't stack up the coronation is likely to see a reduction in overseas visitors because people tend to stay away when these big things are on um so you get some people that turn up for it but other people will stay away and then we have an extra public holiday which will uh, cost the economy in excess of one billion pounds so it's going to be pretty expensive but i think the, the thing about the cost thing it's not the reason why we get rid of, want to get rid of it if it was profitable or free we would still want to get rid of it because this is part of our constitution and the thing i'd say about tourism you know we shouldn't base our constitution on what people enjoy doing on their holiday no you wouldn't put you know we the people believe that you know uh visitors like seeing uh castles in the top of your constitution um you know it's about we the people want you know our sovereign and uh citizens in our own country and that should be the basis of the conversation about getting rid of the monarchy.
0: Well, of course, here in the United States, the president and everybody in in government and in the military and in the intelligence services, etc., they swear an oath to the Constitution. Whereas in the UK, they swear an oath to the Queen, do they not? Or in this case, King Charles.
4: That's right, yeah. Well, mostly, yes, there are some exceptions. But um, the most public officials, uh, well, military, parliamentarians and so on, uh, the police, um, although I think not in Scotland and certainly not in Northern Ireland where there's no royal oath swearing at all. But um, in most of the UK, yeah, it, it is an oath to the king. And, I mean, on the weekend they suggested that everybody take this oath um, on... The day of the coronation, um sort of standing up and you know saying it out loud to your television at home, which went down really badly um has a very strong reaction against that. Um, I think that people tolerate the monarchy by by and large. they're not that enthusiastic about it. Most people are not royalists in this country, um, and judging by recent polls about how enthusiastic people are about the coronation, you know, it's, it's about anything from 9% was the lowest, 15% was probably the highest. Um, so that's your royalist core, and then everybody else is either opposed to it or don't care. And so when they were told, well, you know, you'll be invited to swear allegiance to the king, a lot of people were like, well, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, absolutely not. So um I think that's one of those things which is generally annoys people uh, quite a lot when you know because all our mps have to swear allegiance to the king um even those who very clearly want to abolish the monarchy so they're forced to lie in order to take their seat in parliament so it's a, it's a strange situation to be in
0: but what explains why the australians had a referendum and turned down cutting the ties to the monarchy and not having the queen as a head of state because a lot of countries around the world, you know, the Canadians at least have changed their flag, but the idea that you have a person sitting in London who's actually your head of state, particularly, you know, Asian countries and at least not the Commonwealth countries wonder who's in charge. So what explains what happened in Australia, do you know?
4: Well, it's complicated. I mean, there's it, a number of different reasons. Partly it was rushed. You know, they went through the process too quickly. Partly that they had a model, an alternative that was put forward that um, split the Republican movement. Uh, the suggestion was that it should be a president um, nominated and agreed by the two main political parties in Parliament, which uh, a lot of Australians thought, well, no, I don't want to give that to the politicians. I want to be able to vote for them uh, myself. Um it was done at a time that uh, it was actually in, the referendum was introduced by a staunch monarchist prime minister because he'd promised it at the election in order to to uh, neutralise that issue um, during that election to the the Labour government the, at the time that he went and defeated was promising a referendum so and, and so having that power of incumbency in government as a staunch monarchist to then influence that debate um, probably right. helped as well. So a uh, number of complicated reasons. But um, I think now there's a poll out just today that 60% of Australians now want to um, ditch the monarchy. So uh, And there's now a very pro-Republic Prime Minister in government. So it's not going to happen straight away because they've got another big referendum they're pushing, but um, I think it will happen.
0: So just in closing then, back to the work that you're doing in the UK with the Republic, do you make the point that the royal family are the pinnacle of a class system that is in many ways, has crippled England. I mean, the UK has, for the last what, couple of decades, has been absolutely—it's the worst self-inflicted wound in, almost mm-hmm. in political history—that Brexit and the the Tories have really ruined the country, as far as I can see. So.
4: It's definitely, I mean, there's a, there's an issue of class, there's an issue of actual real political power. So the, the crown, um, the way we have sort of evolved over the last 200 years, the crown's powers, which are, are vast, um, have been uh, essentially taken over by the government, i.e. the prime minister. So the prime minister has an awful lot of power, or the government has an awful lot of power, and um, at the expense of parliament and the voters. So once they're in power, I mean, it was said this was said 50 years ago by a conservative lord uh, he made a speech saying that we are an elective dictatorship because there's so much power in the hands of government and so few checks and balances um the 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 government can do whatever they like while in between elections and that does that concentration of power and the lack of checks and balances does i think lead to poor decision making and um leads to bad policies so i think that's and a lot of that comes back, as I said, to the crown. Um, but, it, but I think it definitely it, it, getting rid of the monarchy is not going to deal with the class system, but it makes it a lot easier to deal with without it. And I think this is the, one of the big things about getting rid of the monarchy, it's not going to solve all our problems, but it's going to make it a lot easier if we're more democratic and without this kind of baggage to then tackle other issues such as poverty, inequality and in class.
0: Just in closing, would the other European models work better in the UK? Would that be some kind of compromise where the Danish and Swedish and Dutch royals don't seem to have as much power and influence?
4: Well, no. I mean, we we are a member of the European uh, the Alliance of European Republican Movements. We're going to have Dutch and Swedish and Norwegian republicans at the protest on Saturday, and um, you know. Yes, they're not quite as bad, but they are pretty bad. Um, so we look to European republics, so Ireland and Germany and Finland and Iceland, places like that, and say, look, you know, we can elect our head of state, still have a parliamentary system, still have a prime minister, but have a head of state who is uh, there to do the ceremonial stuff and also to guard the constitution. And that works really well in those other countries around Europe.
0: Well, Graham Smith, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Graham Smith, who is the CEO of the campaign organization Republic, which aims to abolish the monarchy and replace it with an elected head of state. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Abolish the Monarchy, Why We Should and How We Will. And he has an article at CNN, We Want a Choice Instead of Charles. And he joined us from London, England. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back examining the reintroduction of child labor in the United States by Republican governors in Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, and South Dakota.
3: It's time to say goodbye.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Hiltzig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry. Currently, he writes the twice-weekly column... Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. And his books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is America Vanquished the Ancient Atrocity of Child Labor. Republicans are bringing it back. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Hiltsey.
2: Hi, and Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And you point out, in terms of the title of your Peace, America Vanquished, the Ancient Atrocity of Child Labour, that in 1933, in signing a textile industry code that outlawed the employment of children under 16 in sweatshops, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said that, quote, after years of fruitless efforts and discussion, this ancient atrocity went out in a day. Well, it's coming back, right? It's more than the nose of the camel. It's already uh, in, what, about 10 states?
2: Uh, yes, 10 states uh, have either enacted or have introduced laws that roll back child labor restrictions. Most recently, Arkansas actually enacted and the Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed a law repealing a rule that required children under 16 uh, to have their ages verified and obtain the written consent of a parent or guardian before uh, being allowed to work.
0: So what is the excuse or justification for this?
2: Well, the the explicit justification which I think is sort of a uh, a chimera is that this is all about parental rights and and you know we we hear about parental rights lately from the right uh, uh often when they're talking about banning books that parents might not want their children to read or interfering in uh K through 12 Curricula or what have you. This is another manifestation of that, and the idea is that these these old, outmoded, outdated restrictions on child labor are interfering with the parents' right, I, I, I guess, to put their kids to to work.
0: But some of the, as the article points out, the kind of work that these young kids are being sort of sent off to because these laws allow their parents to put them in effect in harm's way, you take the case of the Wisconsin-based Packer Sanitation Services and the kind of work that resulted in the Department of Labor charging them with systemic child labor violations is so horrendous. They're you know, doing these graveyard shifts, cleaning this incredibly dangerous equipment that's used to chop the heads off cattle, and rip them apart, and the kids are sort of slipping around in all the blood-stained and and, and slippery floors from all the offal. And it, I mean, it's it's just disgusting when you when you visualize the kind of work they are doing. apparently, when the DOL inspectors were there, the the managers of the, of the plant were sort of scowling at the kids, making sure they wouldn't talk to the inspectors. I mean. This is almost takes you back to the days of the Fabian socialists in nineteenth uh, century Britain. You know, right? First. Well,
2: uh, and the the photograph that I used to to illustrate my uh, my column was one taken from nineteen hundred at a Pennsylvania coal mine. These were twelve and thirteen year olds, and and you're right. The, the, the relaxation of these child labor laws is often portrayed as just a way to get Children, their first jobs uh, scooping ice cream during the summer or, or or what have you, and what we've seen is that in fact, children and the the parents of children low income uh, families, uh, often uh, immigrant families, they are really vulnerable to being abused. And manipulated, and yes, in this case of Packer Sanitation, these kids, some as as young as uh, uh, younger than fourteen, were being put to work on the, as you said, the graveyard shift. They would uh, ring off their jobs sometimes at five a.m. or seven a.m., and then they're expected to go to school. They were uh, working in the most horrendous conditions um, around uh, sharp knives, hydraulic equipment. These are conditions that are specifically banned for child labor by federal law, and that's why the Department of Labor was able to find this this operation, which provided more than 100 children uh, to uh, slaughterhouses in eight states, including Arkansas. Um, they were the Department of Labor fined them $1.5 million. That's not very much, and that's really not enough to dissuade unscrupulous employers from using children. But it's the most that the law allows, about $15,000 per child uh, who's put to work uh, in violation of the law. So what we really need is for child labor laws to once again be strengthened in the United States, not relaxed.
0: So what's the motive then behind the Koch brothers, affiliated Americans for Prosperity, who've pushed to relax these so-called laws? I mean, relax is hardly the word, but repeal child labor laws. And then also you've got the uh, Uline family in Wisconsin and the Cyrus Gay Foundation and the Lynn and Harry Bradley Foundation. They've all lobbied against... Medicaid expansion and work requirements for food stamps, along with undoing these child labor protections what's their motive I mean they 've got so much money i don 't understand why you'd want well, to this, this impoverish is, young American kids and take away their health care and their food
2: right This is part of a of a long standing right wing campaign for deregulation. They they want to basically get the government off the backs of the people so that big business can saddle up as, as as I wrote. Um they think that any laws like this are basically some sort of infringement of individual liberty. Basically uh they want to make uh uh to to uh foster freedom uh to abuse the most vulnerable people. In our society, and they don't really care. They don't think it's significant that they're putting 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds to work in, in, in conditions that even uh, seasoned adults might find appalling.
0: Well, so far, the Department of Labor, according to your article, Michael, have found 835 companies employing more than 3,800 children illegally, and they're all across the country and they're working on in construction sites at the age of 16 and 17. I recall also fairly recently a lot of pressure to allow 18-year-olds to drive 18-wheeler big rigs. I take it that. Did that actually pass? I mean, the idea of those huge behemoths roaring down the freeway driven by an 18-year-old is not very reassuring.
2: Uh, now, well, I don't know if that passed, but certainly there are bills in the legislatures of, of a dozen states that would allow uh, uh, youngsters, 16- and 17-year-olds, maybe even younger, to work around construction sites. You know, we certainly see pressure from the grocery industry, from restaurants to allow um, uh, minors to serve alcohol to patrons. These are all standards that one would have thought had been Uh, strengthened and and this sort of work eradicated decades and decades ago as it was. So, you know, what we've seen since then is sort of a relaxation of regulations. We've seen a deregulatory environment. We've seen just basically inattention to what's becoming a greater problem. Uh, The department of labor says that they've seen something in the neighborhood of a um, uh, a, a 69% increase in children being employed illegally by uh, companies all around the country. We saw not not very long ago that children were found uh, working in uh, automobile manufacturing sites that were uh, operated by Hyundai here in the United States. Uh, Hyundai claims they didn't know it, that they hired basically a labor contractor, and they're the ones – responsible but but you know the fragmentation of the American workplace in which nobody claims responsibility for what's happening on the factory floor that's part of this too that's why we can see these sorts of abuses taking place and only intermittently being wiped out
0: but just back to the Packers sanitation story where these young kids as young as fourteen. Are using hoses with steaming hot water to clean this equipment that's used to slaughter animals, and this you know slipping around in bloodstoke floors with grease and fat from the offal and stuff from the the dead animals that the plant processes, and according to the laws by the Department of Labor, federal law says that. You can't have anybody under 18 cleaning power driven machinery such as food slicers, food grinders, food choppers, or most work performed at slaughtering and meat packing establishments. So, and apparently, at this particular place, the Department of Labor inspectors had to bring in Spanish language speakers because these kids that were being exploited were from migrant households.
2: Absolutely that was absolutely the case and by the way Packers sanitation which was the target of this particular enforcement campaign is not a fly by night fringe operation it's owned by one of the the biggest private equity firms in the world that's Blackstone um you know they're they're part of a huge conglomerate so uh, they really have no excuse Blackstone says, oh, we have an absolute zero-tolerance policy against employing any child labor, but this was happening right under their noses, so clearly they didn't care enough to make sure that their own company was complying with the law.
0: But I mentioned earlier, Michael, that it's reminiscent of, you know, going back to the 19th century to the Dickensian age with the the Fabian socialists first alerting the public through writings and, of course, Dickens' novels, etc., about the hideous abuses of children and stunting their lives, turning them into pit ponies in mines, as you mentioned the photo in your in your article at the Los Angeles Times. What's going to raise the conscience of the American people, as, as the Fabians did back in the last century?
3: Well, we're going to
2: see, I think, more of these cases. We're going to see uh, more of these investigations. And I, I think the problem is, I mean, the horrific... Prospect is that we're going to see deaths and maimings of children. Just in Packer's sanitation, uh, they uncovered cases in which children had uh, suffered chemical burns from using these cleaning up chemicals. Um, We we may see much worse. And I think that the, the, the horrific prospect is that we're going to see a case that's so horrible that maybe the entire country will wake up. We don't want that to happen. We would prefer. To have the enforcement actually take place as it should, but if you're talking about what's going to wake people up, uh, we're going down that road where we're going to have uh, some uh, some really horrific cases.
0: And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, what's her excuse? Is anybody? I mean, she's got wears her Christianity on her sleeve, uh, after all. father's a preacher.
2: Right. Well, you you know, in in her case, basically, her defense was, well, you know, this law that we repealed, uh, you know, we didn't repeal the laws that make it illegal to put children in dangerous situations. Uh, But that's sort of a smokescreen. I mean, what they did was they removed the first level of enforcement capability from their own state inspectors by absolving families and, and, and employers of actually filing paperwork that certified that they knew who was working on their floors. Uh so so basically the fact that the laws that uh, uh that prohibit employing children in dangerous circumstances still exist in Arkansas if they can't be enforced then they then they're not really worth anything. So basically, you know, Sanders is is swanking around as though she's done a great thing for families that need uh, to put, uh, you know, a child to work so that everybody else's mouths can be filled. But but that's really not what's happening and that's not what's going to happen as these laws proliferate.
0: So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, Michael, I wanted to, to ask you about your next uh, column, which comes out in uh, Wednesday's Los Angeles Times. It's about how... The universities in red states are being dumbed down. We know, of course, what's happening in Florida. How how much is it happening across the country?
2: Well, it's happening in a lot of red states. I mean, we've seen um, uh, universities, we've seen uh, professors losing their tenure rights, which, of course, uh, uh, of course preserve academic freedom. We've seen attacks on tenure in Texas and North Carolina and uh, the, the the original case was Wisconsin where Scott Walker uh tried to appeal to the right wing base of the Republican Party by attacking the University of Wisconsin and uh he he did damage the university of course it didn't get him the presidential nomination that he sought but we we're seeing this we're seeing this sort of wholesale attack on uh public universities uh across the South and the Midwest in, in these red states, because they know that universities are centers basically of, uh, of smart opposition to right-wing policies, and they want to undermine that. And Yes, in Florida, the damage that's being done to the University of Florida and the University of Florida system is incalculable, and it's going to be very hard to reverse. there and at the University of Texas, and the University of Wisconsin, and, uh, and everywhere else.
0: Right, and on top of that, of course, they, they want to make it difficult for students to vote in these universities. I thank you for joining us, uh, Michael Hilsing.
2: Okay, Ian, thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Michael Hilsey, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry. He currently writes the twice-weekly column, Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. And his books include The New Deal, and Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robert Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is, America vanquished the ancient atrocity of child labor. Republicans are bringing it back. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org